This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. You know, I, I like to say that fiction is a lie, but good fiction is the truth inside the lie. And the truth that any person who's ever lost a child knows is that you wish you could bring them back to life. And the story explores what might happen if something like that could could happen. So horror fiction, a lot of it, to me, is the lure of the forbidden. Oh, the forbidden. Now, at a yeah. deeper and additional level, is it also some sense of, of dealing with your own fears? I think it is. I think that... By comparison, by what? Well, by comparison, saying uh, uh, as bad as things are, yeah. they're not this bad. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Buy the Book with Sharmila Ganesan and my fellow constant reader, Lee Chui Lin. Hello. It is our monthly bibliography episode, and uh, today we are very excited. And I think, fair warning, um, neither of us are neither of us are neutral observers in this conversation today. We are dedicating our show to Stephen King because his birthday is today, the twenty first of September. And so, of course, we decided we've wanted to talk about him forever. So why not now? So we don't always do living authors, right? Because it can be quite tricky to discuss. I mean, their body of work isn't done. It's difficult to talk about things like their legacy or the impact that they've had. But I think because of because Stephen King's been writing for such a long time, um, we're talking as he's turning 74. And he's also written, I mean, 63 novels. He's had five nonfiction books. He's had like 200 short stories. There is a lot to cover. Um, and that's not even considering the fact that I'm not addressing his personal life yet. And there's a lot to talk about there as well. He's also shaped movie history. He's, um, I think, given birth to an entire genre of a particular type of filmmaking and TV shows, music um, videos, music videos, and and I think in a larger sense, he's also a great example of a very particular kind of writer. And we touched on this a little bit when we did our bibliography of Michael Crichton. The writer who is tremendously popular, but at the same time, not necessarily viewed as being all that great a writer. And I think with Stephen King, that's kind of amplified because on the one hand, he shaped an entire genre, literally. On the other hand, even now, he's constantly criticized for not really being literary, of of being a genre writer, of being just a horror writer. And this despite the fact that he's won numerous awards. He's won uh, the National Book Awards. He, he's won uh, Bram Stoker Awards, the World Fantasy Awards. And yet, I think, despite being very rich and successful, not necessarily always considered among the greats. So I do want to say up front that when we did our Michael Crichton episode, we spent quite a bit of time acknowledging his gaps as a writer. So we, we spoke quite a bit about how the characters can be stilted. Um, you know, almost everything is sacrificed in the name of pushing the story forward, of getting the science across. And in the case of Stephen King, I think the reason why both of us take it so personally when he's, um, you know, when, when critics go for him is because I don't think that's fair. I do think that Stephen King is a, a great writer. I tend, especially now that we're in the latter stages of his career, I really think of him as a figure of Americana. A lot of his books, a lot of uh, even his pop culture place within the world, within America, is very much embedded in a certain thorough Americanness, And with that comes a lot of the hallmarks of what you would consider American fiction, I suppose. Um, in some ways, the 
the plain spokenness, the emphasis on dialogue, the the simplicity, the emphasis on characters and characterization, particularly of small town America. And so I, I do feel like sometimes uh, when we talk about Stephen King and the, the quality of the writing, he is unfairly maligned and he's often held to his worst works, which again, for somebody who has written so much, you can, of course, find a fair amount of drivel. I mean, he, he wrote a lot under the influence and he's <laughs> talked about that as well. And those books have a sometimes very fever dream um, over the top quality. But I don't think it's fair to judge the entire uh, breadth of his work by his worst. So I think all the things that you just brought up actually brings us very neatly into the thing we usually do with a bibliography episode, right? Which is to kind of um, trace their life alongside their works. And I think that every manness, the small town quality, small town America quality of his writing comes from who he is as a person. So he grew up in Maine, specifically the uh, more rural, smaller towns in Maine. And I think that famously goes on to shape so many of his stories. So many of his stories are set in Maine or they're set in uh, similar smaller towns of America, like Little Rock in Colorado. And I think it comes from that. So he, um, just to very quickly go through how he grew up, uh, his parents split up when he was very young. So he was raised by his mom and raised through some pretty difficult times, um, you know, had to struggle for money. Uh, he had a public school education. And so because of that, I think the plain spokenness, the awareness of what it is to grow up in a particular strata of American society in a particular part of the country that's often overlooked by the larger cities and the politicos that are, you know, speaking in Washington, I I think that has a very profound effect on the way he writes, because not only is he writing about them, I almost feel like he's writing for them in their voices. And that's something that wasn't necessarily done as much or as prominently until he came along. Well, yes. And it's important also to note here that uh, when we say that he grew up uh, really rather really rather poor. He was also poor for a good chunk of his adulthood, right? Because after he, he met his wife in university um, and then he went on to become uh, a teacher. And in that time, he was also the classic struggling writer. They were trying to make ends meet. They uh, were, were not living very well at all to the degree where I think when Carrie, his first published novel, his fourth novel, but the first one that was actually published, made it, right? When when he got signed, they couldn't even call him because his phone line had been disconnected. They sent him a telegram. Exactly. So I, I think that it's worth thinking about that as well, because he's not exact, he's not a late in life success by any means, but he was a struggling writer for a good period of time. And he also lived as somebody who was basically making ends meet day to day with a young child, with a young marriage, um, and trying to write and getting these constant rejections, which is also something that he's spoken about because he used to contribute to magazines and the like. Um, and in fact, Carrie, which has since gone on to become this cultural phenomenon, right? He actually threw away because he had been so disheartened by it. He was so convinced that it was a loser of a story and that he was not going to be able to grasp the uh, the female, the, the feminine aspects of telling a story of a traumatized teenage girl. Um, and it was his wife who fished the pages out of the, the dustbin, essentially, and persuaded him that you've got this. This is something that can fly. And so... Um, when we talk about his representation of small town America, it comes not just from his child, but childhood, but also from a lived experience as a working adult. 
We have to mention Tabitha King, right? I'm glad yes. you brought her up. Um, and especially in those early years, I think, you know, he always speaks about her um, and, and her profound influence on her career. But I think all of those things that you just said, um, some of her contributions involve, for instance, um, making sure he didn't take a higher paying job so that he could have time to write because she believed so strongly in his ability to become a writer. Um as you said, she saved Carrie from ending up in the dustbin. Um, so I and and he credits her also for being able to help him understand Carrie and being able to write the book in the way that he did. So, um, you know, one of the things I like about talking or rather about discussing authors who are still living, whose lives are closer to us, is we have a clearer idea of the people in their lives because we're not just looking back at letters, but we actually have interviews and, and evidence of what they say. And, and I, this is just a little nugget of information that I've always loved about Stephen King. Um, and the fact that she stood by him throughout his addictions and after the accident. So I think which is to say Stephen King for me, for all that the books that he writes that are so weird and, and you know, often terrifying represents to me a kind of writer that's extremely human. And I think that comes across in the kind of uh, language he writes, in the characters he writes. And he's interested, I think, in exploring humanity through these outsized over the top lenses. Through relationships, this is what I would argue. I've said this elsewhere um, on our show in other moments where we've found excuses to talk about Stephen King, basically. And I think that one of my favorite things about Stephen King, and it comes through in the dialogue, and he talks a lot about the emphasis he places on dialogue, on people sounding natural when they speak to one another on the page. I think that he's an, a writer who's very interested in relationships, in what relationships tell you about who they are. And this is something that he develops constantly, whether or not it is um, romantic relationships, friendships. There are relationships throughout Stephen King novels that I find thoroughly engrossing and heartbreaking. And I think that sometimes that gets lost. I, I, I've always said that it is not really about a clown. It's not really about Pennywise. It is about the, the tangled web of relationships that you can form when you're a child yes. and, and the ways that that carries you through to adulthood. So we've talked about Carrie, of course, which was his first breakout novel. Um, and then, of course, from then... Success came actually pretty quickly for him. Um, Carrie was made into a film and he's always talked about how the movie fed back into the success of the book. So after Carrie, essentially, we see some of his greatest hits, um, Salem's Lot, that was in 1975. Uh, then The Shining, which again huge film. Um, he did The Stand. And then from then on, we just see a whole slew of writing, which I think brings us to one of the biggest things that I always said about Stephen King, which is his um, is the fact that he's incredibly prolific, right? He, in fact, even had to come up with an alter ego. Some people say uh, Richard Bachman, because of the fact that there were laws about publishing too many books under a same author's name. Of course, he also said that he had massive insecurities and therefore decided to see whether people would buy a book that wasn't by Stephen King. But I, I think that this this idea of writing as a profession is um, one of the things I like the most about him because he doesn't glamorize it. He doesn't turn it into a tortured artist thing. He writes. The man really writes. So what's coming through, I think, um, throughout our conversation is really the uh, the 
down-to-earthness that Stephen King brings to a lot of his work, right? Um, and it's a funny thing to say about a millionaire. It's a really funny thing to say about somebody who owns mansions throughout, not throughout America, I exaggerate, but you know, <laughs> he, he has homes. He donates millions in a year. He earns a lot. I mean, he's, he's a best-selling author, has been for decades now. And so it's a funny thing to continue to call somebody like this down-to-earth. But that, again, is the quality that comes through in his writing. And um, I come back to that point about him being interested in exploring his characters through relationships because I think more highfalutin authors will put someone in an existential crisis or will have a very internalized sort of character um, and that's not what he does and that's and that's also what makes his characters so thoroughly readable. The workman approach he takes to writing is something he talks about a lot. He says, you know, you sit down, you write and you read for six to eight hours a day, you hit 2,000 words, it doesn't matter whether it's good or it's bad, and this is how I've become who I am. Yes, I have limitations with my skill, but you know what? I write, it's what I do. And the fact that someone who is this wildly successful after all these years has been giving this same advice now <laughs> for, for years and years and years and not changing, I think says a lot. That book is on writing and to my money, one of the best books ever written about the process of writing. If you want to know about the life of an author, but also if you want to be a writer yourself. We are talking about Stephen King today for our bibliography episode. Well, it's his birthday today as well, September 21st. Let us know, are you a fan? Um, what are some of your favourite Stephen King books? WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio or write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. What are your top five books or short stories uh, of Stephen King, Stephen King. My favorite short story would be called Survivor Type, which was about a physician who gets stranded on a little island and he's smuggling heroin and uh, he's starving, so he eats himself piece by piece. So I like it you know, for the yeah, whole family. <laughs> okay, one. That is family friendly, yeah. Yes. That's, that, that could be a Disney cartoon. Sure. I like Misery, the novel Misery, a lot. That sure. was kind of fun. Quite personal. Um, it was a fun book to write. This is like, you know, a Led Zeppelin concert, sort of like. That's two. Misery. I like Lisey's story very much. It sure. Was, uh, it's a series that's now that. streaming on Apple Plus, and uh, I held on to that for a long time. The Stand, and there was one called uh, Stand By Me, The Body. And? And Billy Summers. The current one, yeah. And Billy Summers. The book, Billy Summers, one of his top five, is available now. The man is Stephen King, everybody. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn, and we're dedicating today's show to Stephen King. It is our monthly bibliography episode. It's also Stephen King's birthday today, the 21st of September. So we've spent... Um, a bit of time, I think, talking about the kind of writer he is uh, and his formative years, I wanted to now move on to talking about his books and the impact and the influence that they've had. This may not be the easiest question, but do you have a favourite king, Lynn? I don't. So I, I love Different Seasons, which is a collection of novellas. I think that that's among his best, and those are the ones that stay with me a long time. I've always loved the Dark Tower series, despite the uh, frustrations involved in reading that. I liked 112263. Basically, the things that I've enjoyed from Stephen King stretch across different spans of his career. I think the thing that has colonized my mind for the longest um, is a combination of it and Salem's Lot. 
Oh, um, very, very similar. So Different Seasons is a great suggestion because it actually encompasses, I think, some of his most popular and I want to say best made films as well, because it's Stand By Me, Shawshank Redemption and Apt Pupil, which is a little bit of a dark horse, but I enjoy it tremendously. For me, I think my favourites and with King, it's very difficult just because he's written so many books. It, because it was one of my earliest and it terrified me, but it also put me inside the mind of children in the way that you mentioned earlier. And The Green Mile. I love Green Mile as a book. I love it as a movie as well. Um, I wept so hard. I lost the ability to see. For yes, a short while. exactly. Yeah. And... I wanted to bring that up as an example of how I think because of the number of books he's written, because of the huge body of literature he's put out there, I think it's not at all overstating it to say that Stephen King actually shaped an entire idea of what horror is. Everyone knows what a Stephen King type book is, even if they've never read him. It's the reason why you can have a series called Castle Rock and understand that that's kind of what he does. The thing about Stephen King and horror is that he spans a lot of different types. So he's played with genre. Um, he's done he's done all sorts. He's done all your monsters, vampires, werewolves. He's, he's run through that. Um, he's done very intense body horror, intimate horror. Uh, he's also done a lot about the horror of people. I'm thinking here of things like misery, which really don't don't have a supernatural element beyond the fact that here's a person who's going to hurt someone else. Misery um, actually it. scared me more than most of his actual monsters. Yes, because she's she's horrifying. Yeah. And so I think that the thing that set Stephen King's horror writings apart tend to be all the things that we've already talked about, the plain spokenness, the fact that the monsters will be among us, um, you know, the fact that they might be the person holding your hand and it turns out it's a clown. Um, you know, it's all these different things. So that brings me to the question of why is it still so difficult to talk about him and not acknowledge that he's an incredibly important writer? And I realize I'm a fan and I'm biased, but similar to the writers that he himself counts as influences, um, H.P. Lovecraft or Richard Matheson, um, there is a disconnect between acknowledging that something that has shaped so much of modern culture and pop culture is important and has value. And, and I keep wondering why we struggle with this collectively. I think it's because he's still alive. I really do believe mm. that. Um, and we didn't, we touched on this very, very briefly, but he had a near-death experience famously, right? He was walking, um, he, he does these daily walks, or he used to, and he was on one of them. And basically a car driven by a Stephen King character, essentially, <laughs> yes. hit him and, and, and fractured his hip and his leg because uh, he lost control of his truck while he was trying to contain a dog in the backseat, which is truly a Stephen mm -hmm. King character. And he's talked about that and uh, he's written about it before. Basically, it put him in a great amount of pain for a prolonged period of time. And I think that if we had lost Stephen King then, and it did look at the time like it was touch and go, I remember it being reported when it happened. Oh, I was Reft, I must say, because I was exactly. old enough to understand what was happening and I was a huge fan. Yes, I'm still a huge fan. <laughs> Thinking about it now, it's it's still, you know, it was still something that was very scary. He's an important figure, right, as a reader to me. But um, I think that if we had lost him then, 
the narrative around him now would be very different. Yes, and it's unfortunate because actually he talks constantly about how he improves himself as a writer, which is another thing that you don't hear from a lot of writers who are still publishing, right? The fact that when people criticize him, he says, yes, I know, I know my books are bloated. I've been trying to cut them down. Or I know I sometimes, you know, shortchange women in my books. I'm trying to figure out how I can do that better, which I think is an incredibly big thing for an author to do, especially one who's as prominent as he is. And to my mind, someone who's still publishing very consistently as well. And it's something that he's talked about a lot, which, um, again, perhaps that contributes to why we find it difficult to regard him as a great because he doesn't treat himself like one in the sense that, um, you know, you have authors and, and people in general, artists in general, who elevate their process, right? Who talk extensively about the places their mind has to go to and, and all the preparation they need before they set pen to paper. And I think that that feeds into a mythology about them, even though Stephen King is also known to write longhand for for example, he doesn't always write everything down on what he would call in the past a word processor. Um, you know, he, he has written his books longhand. He, he does also talk about that. But the thing that people always ask him is, how do you write such disturbing stories? The thing that people tend to ask him over the course of his life focus on, you know, basically trying to bait him into telling them if he is a serial killer. And I think that that kind of forthrightness, but also that lack of mythology building around himself is also maybe why people still think of him as a pulpy writer and not much more. I wanted to close off by talking about Stephen King today, because there are two aspects of that. That's There's Stephen King who still writes his books, which I have to admit, I ha I don't always sort of cotton on to. Occasionally, I like his newer work, uh, but the, he's not. his books are not something I sort of avidly wait anymore. But there's also Stephen King, the tweeter, um, the person who comments on politics, the person who has views. And I must say that for me, I like Stephen King later years, the commentator, because it really reflects a lot of his worldview. And I think he's kind of become that person now who's at that point in life where he talks about just the goodness in people and wanting to see people be decent. And it's something that you can actually take seriously. And I think the reason why his thoughts translate so well to tweets is because he's always written op-eds, actually. Um, you know, this is something that he has traditionally done. He writes columns, um, he writes opinion pieces, he has gotten into squabbles with local politicians even prior to to the existence of Twitter. And I think that's maybe why... Oh, he um, called out it, Trump multiple times? Multiple times. And if you read his writings, uh, there's always been a very snappy quality. We haven't... We're out of time and we haven't even talked about how funny he can be and, and he can be a very, very funny writer. And I think it's all these things that translate to his modern day persona because he's kind of the same person he always was, just with 140 characters and this large audience. And he's just really the large audience he's always had, yes. just an immediacy, you know, that he can access. Um, I just want to say very quickly, I know we haven't talked about it, but the man also builds worlds. Yes. Oh, yes. The Stephen King multiverse. Truly, yeah. the show cannot contain everything that we want to say about him. But if you're a fan, um, if you've read enough of his works, you'll realize that characters sort of move between books. Um, in fact, the whole Dark Tower series actually is about this idea that there is a multiverse of worlds and that, um, and that all of Stephen King's novels and characters are contained within it. Yes. So we are going to be talking about screen adaptations after this, but I wanted to just close off very quickly. Lynn, if no, someone hadn't read Stephen King, what should they start with? I'd say different seasons and on writing. 
On writing is an excellent one. I would say on writing and misery. Just because you just got to get in there. That's That's the heart of the terrifyingness. Let us know, are you a fan of Stephen King? What are your favourite books? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. brings us to footnotes and as always we are going to close off our bibliography of Stephen King by talking about his uh, movie adaptations or rather screen adaptations of which really in this case there have been so many he's famously known as the most adapted author uh, for the screen so there are really so many to talk about that I think the only way to start is perhaps to pick favorites do you have a favorite Stephen King Lynn well Stephen King on screen really not really, mostly because a lot of them are not very good. So when we say mm. that there have been loads of adaptations, uh, we do also have to say off the bat that many, many, many of them are not as good as the source material. And many of them are also kind of despised. Is that too strong a word? No, not at all. Especially if you're a lover of the book, because then the adaptation is terrible. Oh, I was going to say by the author himself. Uh, yes, that too. He- <laughs> he has talked quite a lot about not enjoying the adaptations, part of it being the preciousness of being the author and, you know, seeing your vision taken into the hands of someone else. But other parts of it, I think he has said, for example, like The Shining just fundamentally misunderstands the source material. And it's it's a great film. It's a great Kubrick film, but it is not a good adaptation of a Stephen King. So with that said, I suppose, same as with the the books, The one that I'm going to bring up first is not my actual favourite. It's just the one that has had the biggest impact on me as a person, and that is it. So not so much the more recent adaptations, but the telly movie with Tim Curry. 100%. Yes, and I think it also came out at a particular time. Because, of course, if you watch it now, you see the the spider at the end is basically (laughs) held together by glue and (laughs) and candy floss. But uh, when you're a kid watching it, you know, you may hypothetically refuse to take a shower for a week because you just don't want to be in the bathroom alone. Hi, Georgie. Aren't you going to say hello? Oh, come on, bucko. Don't you want a balloon? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, Georgie. Very wise indeed. Hi, Georgie. I'm Pennywise, the dancing clown. You are Georgie. So now we know each other. <laughs> Gee, right? I guess so. And there's cotton candy and fries and all sorts of surprises down here. And blue, too. All colors. Do they float? Oh, yes. Oh, the the telly movie was terrifying. I couldn't sleep for days because I imagined clowns lurking in my bedroom. And I completely agree. I was going to pick it. um, So I'm glad you did. 
I think I'm not picking it. I'm blaming it. (laughs) I I also quite like the modern adaptations, I must say. Uh, They did a really good job of adapting it and changing it just enough that it's still scary. I wanted to say that I think part of the challenge with Stephen King, and this goes back to what we talked about and how his writing isn't always viewed with as much reverence as perhaps it should be, I think is that people think they're making a schlocky horror film. Um, But his books are not actually schlocky horror books. They have a lot of subtext and the films that are terrible don't take into account what that subtext is and what he's trying to say. The films that actually work, I mean, I like Shining a lot, but Stanley Kubrick, on the other hand, doesn't get the horror sensibility of um, Stephen King. And so then it ends up being a very different thing. And so I think for an author that's viewed with not as much cred as he should be, his books are actually very difficult to adapt. It's funny, right? Because a lot of the things that we've talked about earlier indicate why it should be quite easy, meaning he writes with a pop culture sensibility. There are a lot of pop culture references. There are a lot of musical references, in fact, in his books. There are a lot of movie references, a lot of comic book references. He is a very pop culture savvy writer. And so he also writes in some ways with quite a cinematic eye. When you read his books, you understand what it's like to be in the cabin or to be under the dome or to be, you know, in any of these places that he's talking about to be in Las Vegas at the end of the world. And um, and he writes very descriptively. I, I wouldn't say it's purple prose, but, you know, he does go into a fair amount of detail with his settings. And so you would think that that makes it easy to adapt. But perhaps because of that, it's like adapting a comic book where um, all the people who've read it have a very clear idea of what it's supposed to look and sound and feel like. And then if you don't get the other stuff, all that subtext that you just spoke about, then you're not going to get it. And I think it's why something like Misery did so well, because Misery actually managed to capture all of that and why it also, despite the fact that I really love, hate, you know, the adaptations, they've done a number on me, they get it. They understand that it is as much about a murderous clown as it is about the bonds that bind us and how even if you want to be free of your childhood, you never really can. You're stealing all of my points today, but (laughs) I couldn't be happier because I was going to pick Misery as my favourite adaptation. Anything else I can get while I'm in town? Any other crucial requirements that need satisfying? Would you like a tiny tape recorder? Or how about a handmade set of writing slippers? I'll just... The, the paper will be fine. Are you sure? Because if you want, I'll bring back the whole store for you. Annie, uh, what, what's the matter? What's the matter? I'll tell you what's the matter. I go out of my way for you. I do everything to try and make you happy. I feed you, I clean you, I dress you. And what thanks do I get? Oh, you bought the wrong paper, Annie. I can't write on this paper, Annie. Well, I'll get your stupid paper, but you just better start showing me a little more appreciation around here, Mr. Man. I love that film so much. Um, And I think in some ways, the reason it's easier, easier, and I say this reservedly, to adapt is because it's about scary humans. And it's about it's about a very psychological kind of horror, which is easier to do on screen when you have good actors and it's um, and, and a writer and, and a screenplay that understands the drama inherent in that situation. Misery is such a good film. I recently rewatched it and it's still terrifying. Um, but I don't think we can talk about Stephen King being adapted without talking about possibly his most lauded adaptation, which is also the most um, or the least horror of his stories, which is, of course, Shawshank Redemption. I think you can easily find 
anyone putting Shawshank on the list of their top 10 favorite movies. And I think that the reason I don't think about it immediately when I think of it as an adaptation is because it's, again, it's not quite Stephen King the way I think of him. Uh, but, you know, Shawshank Redemption is an amazing film. And I think if you want to understand the way he writes and creates characters, that's a great one to watch. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> you can fit right in. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. He had a quiet way about him. A walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside that they can't touch. What are you talking about? Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. You better be sick or dead in there, I kid you not! I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Too busy living. So the thing about Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, the novella, is that it involves a lot of excreta. Um, There is a a significant chunk of the book that just involves someone crawling through miles and miles. The movie chose not to focus on that, perhaps for good reason. Of human waste. Yes. And so, um, but I think that that's the thing about Shawshank Redemption, right? It focuses on the, the happy ending. And I like that for it. But again, how you feel about it as an adaptation, your mileage may vary. I did want to bring up one that we spoke about recently on our movie show, Popcorn Culture, which is Stand By Me. Mm. Um, an adaptation A new one for of- me. Ah, so an adaptation of the body, which um, I, I said at the time, and I will say now, is one of the best adaptations of one of my favorite Stephen King books because it really understands and captures something I've mentioned so many times, which is my love of how Stephen King writes children, particularly children of a certain age. You know, when they're at that spot between becoming teenagers and not being children anymore, and um, I just loved it. I did want to ask you to close off what adaptation haven't you seen that you would actually like to? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, You know, I'm going to cheat and say that it's actually one that's already been made, which is Salem's Lot. Um, But I don't love the film. What I'd instead like to see is a Salem's Lot TV show. Mm. I would love to watch that story. I love vampires. I love the way Stephen King writes about vampires. I'd love to see a Salem's Lot TV show. I would really love to see it. What about you? For the longest time, I just didn't sleep next to windows. Yes, a I Salem know. Slot. Same, Stephen King books do a number on you in so many ways. If you read them when you're a little too young, they significantly change the way you view the world. And the way you actually choose to live life. Um, you know, I don't think it has turned either of us into violent murderers, the way that, um, you know, overprotective parents might believe, but nonetheless, they do a number on you. Um, I want to watch The Dead Zone simply because I've heard such good things and it's Christopher Walken. So, you know, that's mine. So I did want to say that I would also love to see a lot of his short stories adapted into cinematic shorts. Um, So like a Black Mirror anthology, but like a Stephen Mm. King anthology. I'd love that. Imagine how they do uh, the breathing method. Oh my gosh. Um, I don't know if you've read this one and now we're just going into full geek territory. The one where a hand crawls out of the sink in the bathroom. Yes. Oh my God, I can't remember the title, but I want to watch that. Even animated, I would be super excited. 
let us know. Are you a fan of Stephen King adaptations? Uh, which are your favorites? But also, which ones do you want to see adapted? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.